Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. And I guess I could say in a couple hours, happy, happy summer. 75 today? Is that what they're saying? Okay, let it out. Hoo-hoo, you-hoo. That's okay. Quite a turnaround from a couple days ago, isn't it? And I guess, weather-wise, that's a good picture of the turnaround we're going to be celebrating this coming week, just like our brother just prayed as we think about Easter. And I'm going to hopefully warm everybody up for that celebration you'll have as a church family next week. Now, last summer, you, if you were here, you might remember that there was a series that different people were invited to come in and talk about their favorite verses from the Bible and just how God had used those verses to impact them. Remember that? Okay. Um, when I was asked to do that, the favorite verses at that time on my journey, which are the same ones that are the favorite ones today on my journey, were John chapter 13 through 16. So obviously I couldn't speak on the entire passage of John 13 through 16. That's four very long chapters in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. So I couldn't speak on that. So I decided to take two little paragraphs out. Actually, honestly, I chose three, but I only got to two. I only got to two because I just ran out of time and I didn't want to bore you to tears with trying to get through the third one. So today, because that third one really relates to what the celebration we're looking forward to this week is all about, big turnaround between Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, and all the events that were unpredictable from our perspective, not from Jesus' perspective, but from our perspective, I've decided to, I guess you could say, finish up with that passage. So let me just remind you, if you weren't here last summer, those four chapters are just jam-packed with stuff. There were, there were so many things Jesus was sharing with them. They were his farewell words to his closest followers. And he was leading up to, obviously, the crucifixion. He kept telling them it was coming and it was starting to soak in. And right toward the end of that conversation, he shared some things with his closest followers that I think are critical. And it's just my personal opinion that the rest of everything else revolves around what he shared in these few short sentences that really build on each other. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning in a minute. But before that, I wanted to take us back and think about how the evening began. The evening began, of course, they were celebrating the Passover. Um, Palm Sunday was several days prior. Jesus had spent, after Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, teaching in the uh, temple courts and mingling with people, and there were a lot of interactions um, recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, on about Thursday, he tells the disciples to get ready for the Passover. He sends them into town and tells them, hey, you're going to find that somebody's waiting for you to make reservations, okay? So Jesus had divinely made reservations in advance, and the disciples found it just as he expected, and now it was Thursday evening. So this is the night before Good Friday. Of course, the disciples didn't know it was going to be Good Friday yet, right? So it's the night before Good Friday, it's Thursday evening, and Jesus kept telling them, this is hours away. This is coming. It's happening now. And this will be the last time I have this kind of celebration with you until that day in the distant future. And they were reclining at a table, not like the portrait in Leonardo da Vinci's 
depiction where it was a big long table and they were all sitting in chairs. But they were sit reclining at a table that was probably maybe two feet off the ground-ish. And they were, they were kind of lay on the ground and lean their elbow on it and they'd eat and they'd hang out and they'd spend time with each other and they celebrated the Passover. And this is early in the conversation before the passage we're going to look at here in a few minutes. But it's so important that what Jesus did and what he communicated to his closest followers and to us at that point in time, I really want you to focus in on this. Even if you have heard about this before and you've thought about it and wondered about it, I want you to kind of wipe your mind slate clean and picture in your mind being in that room. I want you to picture being reclined at that table. And I want you to picture the king of the world doing what he did. If it helps you to close your eyes, that's fine. But just picture it in your mind's eye from John chapter 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amazing, isn't it? Every time I picture those words, something new comes to my mind. But I just can't get over the love that Jesus showed and that he pictured he was going to show in the hours ahead. So let me ask you a question. How would you have responded if he had come to your feet? You ever wonder that? I have a true confession to make. I tend to be hard on the disciples, especially Peter. But the more I grow and my, the more I journey next to my Savior, the more I realize, you know what? If I were there, I probably would have been more confused than the disciples were. <laughs> I probably would have been more stubborn than Peter was. I probably would have absorbed less than they had absorbed 
even though they had walked with him for the better part of three years. And just like them, I would not have seen it coming. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his world to his father, having loved his own were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then what does he do? He washes their feet. I would not have seen that coming. I would have been expecting something a little bit different. Like, okay, here's the timeline, fellas. Here's what's going to happen. And here's going to be your part in it. Yes, two thumbs up for that idea. But that's not what he did. Christ humbled himself to wash their feet so that he could picture what he was going to do in a few hours and teach them things in the process. And he was hoping that that moment would just be etched in their memories. I wouldn't have seen it coming. It was so upside down. I mean, could you imagine being one of the disciples? He comes to your feet. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence, and so he's the creator of your feet. And he's washing them. I would have expected him to talk more about how he was going to be the king of the world than being the suffering servant. And both of those things had been foretold in the Old Testament, and the disciples were very aware of all those prophecies. But I wouldn't have seen the suffering servant coming like that. And Jesus, as our brothers read, he made it very clear that he wanted them to get some things out of this, but there were some things that weren't going to make sense totally until down the road. They were still looking out the front window, so to speak, but some things weren't going to make sense until they looked in the rearview mirror. He was very honest with them about that. And the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness, he wanted us to know everything that happened in great detail. He went into great detail, didn't he? And you know why I think he wanted us to know that? So that we, like they, the 12 people that had their feet washed, so that we, like they, could reflect on what he was doing, what he was communicating, what that meant for them and us personally. So they could absorb it, so it be etched in their memories. And so then that they could celebrate what was coming. Again, he had told them time and time again, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to, be, I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again. He had told them and told them and told them. But even though I tend to be critical of the disciples, I mean, that just seems so impossible. It just seems so inconceivable. And yet Jesus walked right into it. It wasn't a twist in the plot, an unexpected turn of events. Jesus walked right into it for their sake and for our sake. So I just want to make several reflections, and that we could spend a lot more time on the passage that the brothers read for us in John 13, 1 through 17. But I just want to make several reflections just to set the canvas and get the backdrop ready before we think about the passage that we're going to focus on, which is much shorter, actually. Just a few reflections that even the most thick-headed and stubborn and confused people like me would easily draw from this interaction about foot washing. The first was this. Look how far our Savior is willing to stoop. Look how far he's willing to reach for our forgiveness. Look how far. He chose to lay down his life and serve us on the cross. And here he's picturing it 
by washing their feet. And he tells them that this is a picture of the forgiveness he's going to provide, right? So this is, this is a picture that his forgiveness would not only cover their sins past and present, but his forgiveness and what he's about ready to do is going to cover their sins future too. What an amazing picture of that. He, now, he did go out of his way to say, now, all but one of you in this room has already had a forgiveness bath quote-unquote bath. But there's one person in this room that hasn't had a forgiveness bath, and he was referring to who? Judas. And it's before Judas left the building. Most of the conversation that happens in John 13 through 16 is with Judas, Judas out of the room, but he's in there for this part. And so when Judas was in the crowd, nobody knew who Jesus was referring to, but he was the person that hadn't had a bath. Everybody else had put their trust in Christ for forgiveness. They had a connection with him. They had a relationship with him by entrusting their hearts for forgiveness to Jesus. So when he comes to Peter, he makes something very clear to Peter. When Peter says, nope, you're not going to wash my feet, he says, but you'll have no share with me or no part with me, Peter. And, G and Peter says, well, then wash my whole body. No, 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 Peter. You don't need a shower. You don't need a bath of forgiveness. You just need to have your feet washed. And it's picturing what's coming in the future, the kind of forgiveness that Jesus was going to provide and the kind of forgiveness that we need. And then, as the passage ends, he challenges the disciples. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. That's the very last sentence of that part of the evening. He challenged them to do the same things for others that he was doing to them. He didn't show his love to his disciples the way that they would have expected it. And I wouldn't have seen it coming either. He showed it to them in a completely different way. Instead, he challenged them, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. He challenged them to show his love to his followers. He, he showed his love to them by giving them something other, something different. And he says, I want to challenge you to serve others like I serve you. And you will be blessed if you do it. Back to the honest thing here. It, let's say at that point, I had been in the room and I hadn't said anything to that moment. Okay? At this point, I think I'm raising my hand and say, a question, master? Okay, I just want to be honest. I need to clarify. Okay, Jesus... I believe you are who you claim to be. And I believe that you came to bless me. But this isn't what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting, first of all, for you to be coming around the room washing my feet. And secondly, I wasn't expecting you to ask me and go do the same thing. You've been telling us about rewards and being a part of your kingdom and, and being an exciting part of what you're doing on this planet. But Lord, that doesn't seem to fit very well with what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to follow your example of what you just displayed? Jesus would have nodded or something, maybe a little bit more sternly, I don't know. But he would have nodded. But my picture was completely different. I have a, I have a friend that I've been sharing God's incredible love with for the past few years. And um, he's been through just an awful set of life circumstances. I mean, he has been disappointed and failed and rejected and 
by just countless people in countless settings, and I won't go into detail about that. Every time he calls me up, the first question out of his mouth is the same. He says, hey, Steve, so how's the world treating you? And whenever I hear him ask that question, there's so much that's gone into our conversations about how he feel like, feels like God has not caused his world, my friend's world, to treat him very well. And so he has a really hard time latching onto this concept that God really loves him personally. Because how could God love me personally if my life is this way? My life is a mess. Where's the sign that there's a God in any of this that he's facing? And every time he asks that question, I've come to respond in the same way. Well, you know what? I'm not going to talk about how my world is treating me, friend, but, you know, my Heavenly Father is treating me so much better than I deserve. And every time I say that, it's not just to try to urge him to thinking about God's love in a different way, but it's to remind myself of the same thing. It's to remind myself that, you know what? I, I, I kind of expect that when Jesus says, I'm going to bless you and I want you to experience something, that it's going to take, take the form that my list would be. And that list would fit under the category that my good friend asked me about all the time, that God is going to rearrange the relationships and the circumstances and the events in my life, and he's going to bless me. That's what he does, right? My part is to follow him. His part is to make my life smooth, easy, to let me experience respect and everything that I want to experience. But Jesus shows them something completely different. And I believe that from this point in the conversation on, he underlines what he wants to communicate to them. He underlines that he wants to communicate to them, no, I have something else in mind for you. So here he, here he is, he's just clearly and powerfully pictured through washing their feet, that he has something in mind for them to do and following his example, something in mind for what they're going to experience, and something in mind for how they're going to experience his love in the future. But he doesn't go into a lot of detail yet. Now, in John chapter 15, I think he does go into great detail. And he explains very clearly how that all works. He lays it out step by step. I'm a logical if A, then B, if B, then C kind of guy. And he lays it out step by step in an amazing way. What he wants us to experience and how we experience it. And remember, he knew, even if the disciples hadn't realized yet, that he's about ready to leave. This is about their last time together. These are his farewell words. So he really wanted them to understand a few things. And the 13 through 16, the chapters of John, are nothing but review and reminder. And then there's some very poignant teaching, penetrating teaching, and I think this is toward the core of it. Jesus, in a sense, boils it down. Okay, followers that are in the room with me now and those 2,000 years later, here's what I want you to experience. And here's how you can experience it. So we're going to flip ahead now to John chapter 15, verse 9. You ready? John 15, 9, one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament, one of the most amazing things Jesus ever said. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. There's, there's just so many things we can observe about that. That the creator of the universe 
to be, who is now going to become the savior of mankind, says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So much to think about with that, but I just want to focus on a couple things. First thing is very obvious. His love is completely different than anything we've ever seen. It's out of this world in the sense that it's otherworldly. His kind of love for us is the same kind of love that he compares to what kind of love? The love his father, the first person of the Trinity, has with him, the second person of the Trinity. This, that will take about a thousand years to chew on that one, right? That that's the kind of love he's talking about. When he looks him in the eye and he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You know, all of us come from different backgrounds, different experiences, but each of us in this room has one thing in common. We might be more aware of it than the person next to us. We might be less aware of it than the person next to us. But all of us, down deep, really want to be really loved. We really want to be really loved. And we know deep inside that it's a different kind of love than we see in our world and that we get let down by. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite movies, in a very goofy way, portrays this. It's the movie, and I know that it's going to be mostly people over 45 that have heard of it, called Princess Bride. Seen it? Of course, when you think about the theme of Princess Bride, besides goofy puns, which are phenomenal, which is my kind of sense of humor, one of the themes of it is true love, right? Looking for true love. And when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, and I don't want to get this mingled up with a princess bride analogy, okay? Because it's, it's sacred and secular. I don't want to combine the two. But when you think about it, everything in the princess bride is such a picture in life of where we look to find our true love. And one of the obvious places that we look for is finding that right person to spend our lives with, right? Remember this scene? Those who have seen it? I mean, as we're going to true love, princess is in there. She's getting ready to get married to the wrong guy. And you got this organ music. And, and all of a sudden, this vicar, whatever you want to call him, looks around. And, and then in kind of a way to kind of spoof the whole search for true love in the wrong places, he says, marriage. <laughs> marriage is what brings us together today. And then he goes on to talk about how marriage is the best picture of where we find true love. The dream within a dream, he says. That is exactly the desire of our hearts that's being spoofed and made fun of and ridiculed in a sense that we could ever find it in marriage. But man, do we try. We try to find it in all the wrong places. But Christ as he's saying right here, actually offers real love and delivers it to us when we respond to it. You know, if you're watching a movie like Princess Bride, as goofy as it is, or, or a movie where there's a character that you're rooting for, you're rooting, now, choose that person, not that one. No, go that direction, not that way. You're rooting for them because you know they're going to find dissatisfaction, disappointment over here, and you think they're going to find fulfillment over there. You know that feeling when you're watching a movie? Some movies a little bit more profound than Princess Bride. 
But what Jesus is telling us is he really wants us to experience this love. And you know that word remain? It's an interesting word. If you have another translation, your word might be abide. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. I think the best way to translate that word remain, which doesn't happen in one English word, is to say something like, stay close to my loving heart for you. Stay close to my loving heart for you. That is what he wanted his disciples in that upper room to remember and to taste and to experience. I want you to remain close to my loving heart for you. I love you in this otherworldly kind of way, and I want you to know it. I want you to taste it. And when we think about that, we have all sorts of resistance in our hearts, all sorts of roadblocks, like, that's too good to be true. Well, in a sense, it is. I mean, how could a God who knows everything about me still love me like that? It is too good to be true. Oh, man, I feel such shame because he loves me that way, and I've been so hardened to him. I've been so reluctant to respond. I don't treat him in any kind of a sacrificial way that he has treated me and displayed his love for me. All sorts of shame gets in our way. And then, like in the upper room, he doesn't show his love the way we expect him to show it. I mean, because the way we measure how other people love us is what? How they treat us, how they respect us, how they make us feel. He doesn't do any of those. In our minds, it would be like, okay, Lord, here's my list, my basics of how I would really know that you love me personally. And he says, well, I'm going to love you the way you need to be loved instead of the way that you think you want to be loved. And he washes their feet. And he goes to the cross. In John chapter 15, 10, the, right, the verse that follows us immediately, he begins to tell us, okay, here's how you can experience it. And I really encourage you to reflect on this because this has taken me really a few years for this to even begin to soak in to my thick skull. But when he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now stay close to my loving heart, he doesn't just leave them hanging not knowing what that looks like to do that. Look at what he says. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. You will stay close to my loving heart, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. How do we experience this love, this otherworldly kind of love that he offers? Well, to stay close to his heart, we've got to do what? We've got to obey right? Now, I was raised in a home where it was taught and thought that obeying God was the way that you got to heaven. Some of you can relate to that. Others of you, that's the weirdest thing you've ever heard. But that's what I thought, and that's the way I was raised, to think that if I obeyed God, if I checked enough things off the to-do list that he wanted me to do, and avoided enough of the things on the don't-do list, then I would experience a relationship with him someday. I'd go to heaven someday. But that's not what Jesus is saying here, is it? He's saying, to experience my heart, you must obey. And when you think about it, if we choose not to obey, we're doing what the old song said. We're looking for the kind of love that fills us in all the wrong places. 
So even when you think about the Ten Commandments, and it used to really bother me that most of the Ten Commandments were negative, right? Because what, seven, eight are don't do this, you know, one, two, three are do this. But it's like, when you think about every don't do, don't commit adultery, don't steal, every don't do is telling us don't look for what you're looking for in life in the wrong places. Look for them in me. And that's why one of the things at the beginning of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Seek me. Look for me. I'm the one that loves you with that otherworldly kind of love. So I believe in these verses, these words, these two sentences, Christ gives us the highest motivation possible for obedience. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So not only is he giving us a high motivation, He's comparing how he wants us to stay close to his heart to how Jesus stayed close to his father's heart. He said, that's just what I did with my father. I didn't obey because I was going to lose my relationship with the first person of the Trinity. I obeyed because I want to stay close and experience his love for me. The highest motivation of all. Unfortunately, like I said, before I trusted Christ as my Savior, I had a lot of wrong ideas about where obedience fit in. Pleasing God, doing what he wanted me to do, living life his way. A couple empty motivations. I shared one with you already. I used to think if I obey God, I will somehow earn his forgiveness. Somehow, some way I'll earn his forgiveness. And then later, after I trusted him for forgiveness, I thought, okay, now that I have been forgiven, now that I've allowed him to wash my feet, now that I've trusted what he did on the cross for me, taking my punishment on his shoulders and believing that that was enough for him to do that for me was enough to take care of my sin problem, now all I got to do is obey to hang on to it. Because if I don't stay close enough to him, if I don't follow the rules enough, then he's going to say, okay, I gave you a chance. See ya. And cut me loose. That's such an empty idea. It has nothing close to what Jesus is communicating. But God does give us, through his word in different places, God-given motivations to obey, to obey. One, and you can look at this verse at some other time, we won't dwell there, but one is to express our gratitude to God. Because I've done this for you, do it for others. That's found all the way through the New Testament. And that's a whole different motivation for obedience, isn't it? Than trying to earn a good standing with God or trying to hang on to it. Second God-given motivation is this, to show God I really do love him. A couple times in the upper room conversation and before, he said, if you really love me, you'll obey me. And he's saying so much, some, something so much deeper and richer than if you really love me, you'll keep the rules. He's saying, if you really love me, you will stay close to my loving heart and you will display to me how you feel about me and how you're committed to me. And of course, I think the highest motivation to obey is right here in John 15, 9 and 10, to stay close to his loving heart for me. And what's great is he builds one more statement, well, two more, three more sentences on top of that. Look what he says next. I have told you this, what he's just said, right? I love you this much. If you obey me and stay, you'll stay close to my loving heart for you and experience it, and I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. And your joy may be what? 
complete. This is how we're going to experience what Jesus wants us to experience. We're surprised by joy like C.S. Lewis used to write when we depend on him and give ourselves away to other people. Then after this, after this, he says, he goes from commands plural to commands singular, the next statement. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. It's almost like he gets out this archery target of obedience. If you obey me, you will experience my loving heart for you. Here's your target. And now he's zeroing in on the bullseye. The bullseye is the kind of obedience, the kind of living life his way that finds us loving each other just the same way he loved us. Laying our lives down for others like he laid himself down for us. And think about it. Is there a better picture that we can think of than washing other people's feet? Like Jesus asked us to do? Is there a better picture of the humility and the other-centeredness that we're supposed to have than that? I couldn't think of one. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, that's a very general statement, right? Some of you heard that in Jungle Book and thought, that is really a cool part of the plot in Jungle Book. But it originated from the lips of our Savior. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's a general description of the ultimate display of Jesus' kind of love. What he would do in a matter of hours for them was lay down his life for his friends. So let's just pause and absorb this for a second, okay? Let's just pause and reflect, and I hope that you'll do this throughout the week as you prepare for Easter too. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you now. Stay close to my loving heart for you. We are so moved when we think about the kind of love Jesus showed for us, when we see it pictured on this planet, right? We are so moved when we read a story about a soldier who throws his body on a grenade to save somebody else in his, in his company. I'm moved, are you? I'm moved when I read a story about a mother who's giving birth, and there's this moment where she has to decide that either they're going to save her or save the baby. And she decides to give up her life for the baby's sake. I'm moved by that. And the reason you and I are moved by stories like that is because that gets right to the heart of somebody looking out for our interests with abandonment of their own, laying down their life, laying down everything for them, for you, for me, and giving up everything of their own. And that's why when Jesus suffered on that cross, we are moved because that is the kind of love that we're built for, that we long for. And folks who are loved like that are changed. The, the soldier whose platoon mate gave up his life for him, you ever heard them tell a story? They're changed. A child who realizes later in life that their mom could have chosen the mom's life over their life as a child, they're changed. There's something that's moved deeply within them. And so when God says, I love you, and he says it to each of us, 
He is using that word love in an otherworldly, completely different kind of a way. And I just want you to think about that for a second. Do you believe that? That God loves you personally? And by that word love, that means something so much more than you could ever dream to be true. So much more than what you could ever long to be true. It's so much more than God looking you in the eye and saying, you know what? I like you. So much more than that. It's so much more than him saying, you know what? You make me happy most of the time. That's not what he looks into the eyes of your heart and says. He looks in the eyes of your heart and my heart and he says, I love you. I am sacrificially committed to you, to your future, to your growth, to your character, to what's best for you, to your relationships. I'm committed to you. When God says, I love you, it means something different. And so when you think about it, we always use the phrase, and correctly so, God's love for us is unconditional. And sometimes that helps us to remind ourselves what that means. That means he loves us no matter how we treat him, no matter how we respond to him. He loves us anyway. God loves us unconditionally. However, our experience of God's love is conditional. That's what Jesus is saying right here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, parentheses, unconditionally. Now remain in my love. There's the condition. If we're going to experience his love for us, even though it might be in a completely different way or form than we would anticipate, if we're going to experience God's love for us, it's conditional. It's up to us. We've got to put our hearts in play. Now you might be thinking, okay, Steve, but he's talking to his 12 closest followers. These guys have given up three years of their life. Are you sure that this has to do with us? I've asked that same question. And the, the writer of this gospel could not have made it more clear in the whole gospel that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Everything Jesus is communicating to them, those 12, on that night, Thursday night, the night before Good Friday, he communicates to us. And here's just a few verses to remind us. John chapter 1, verse 12. He starts out as you could call it the preface to the whole book. He says, yet to all who received him, talking about Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, which really is the ultimate invitation. You and I are invited into God's family. He literally invites us to be his sons and daughters. At the end of the book, toward the end of the book, he says, but all these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, believe he is who he claimed to be. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. So if the ultimate invitation is to be part of his family, the ultimate offer is life, personal fulfillment, satisfaction, a forever kind of quality of life, merely by trusting in who Jesus is and what he did for us. And when we accept that, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Lavished is a word that doesn't really communicate the, the, the breadth of it. It's almost like being drowned to life <laughs> instead of drowned to death. How great is the love the Father has drowned us to life that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, children of God. When we allow him to forgive us, 
when we trust him for forgiveness, he overwhelms us with his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So many things to reflect on, but I just encourage you as you head into the Easter week to maybe choose at least these three, if not more. The first one is this, that God's love for you is personal. It's personal. He loves you. He loves you deeply. He loves you passionately. He really loves you in a way that you've never been loved before. Second thing we can draw out of it is that God's love for you is different. If nothing came close to demonstrating that, washing the disciples' feet, dying on the cross for their sins and our sins, that picture is just how different it is. And you might be sitting there at a different points on the spectrum. You might be saying, you know, I'm not real convinced that God loves me. I can see how he loves other people, but I'm not real convinced that he loves me. But you know, Steve, it's kind of soaking in that maybe he does. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to let it slowly, consistently soak in that he loves us. Maybe you're somebody who's convinced of it, but you're not living the kind of life of drawing close and staying close to his loving heart for you by obeying, by living life his way, by keeping your heart in play to experience that otherworldly kind of love he offers you. Well, then, you can reflect on that. But there's a question as we think about the fact that, okay, if, okay I'm getting it, I think, that God's love is personal, which includes me, and God's love is different, which means I'm going to experience it more deeply and differently than any other kind of love that's offered me and all the kinds of love that disappoint me. But we're left with a question. Can he deliver it? Can it really get through? Can it really reach me? Or is God like some very caring grandfather in the sky who's in his rocking chair looking across time and eternity to us and saying, I wish he knew, I wish she knew how much I cared. Can God really do something with it? Will it reach? Will it penetrate? Will it impact? And that brings us to our third and final reflection. God's love for you is powerful. Everything he claimed about his love for you and everything he claimed about his ability to bring joy into your life, everything he claimed about promising for your future, every way that he wants to have you experience his heart for you in a daily kind of way, everything is tied to the fact that Jesus can deliver. And how do we know? Next week we celebrate. We celebrate because when Jesus came back from the grave, he showed, I can deliver. I can reach you. I can make a difference. Not just for now, but for eternity. And he wants us to taste that in a daily kind of a way. If you could close your eyes and just reflect with me as we get ready to, uh, to pray and as we sing a song of pre-celebration for Easter here in a minute. When you think about that, no matter where you are, if you're already convinced and you're a believer and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, or if you haven't, or where you are on that journey, 
do you really believe that God, God's otherworldly kind of love for you is personal? That is for you. Because he wants you to. And do you believe that it's different? It's not going to disappoint you like the other kind of loves that have been offered you in your life have disappointed you. And do you believe that it's powerful enough to reach you?